Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, good morning, friends. A preliminary happy Thanksgiving to many of you. Um, I wish you safe travels this week if you are extending past um, the perimeter to be with family, friends, to be with loved ones. I hope that it is a beautiful time of celebration. If you're a guest with us, I hope that you have felt warmly welcomed thus far by our community here at Eastside. And if you are a guest with us, it might be helpful for you to know that here in this congregation with these people, we have been in something of an extended preaching journey now for going on three years. We've been walking through what is known as the Revised Common Lectionary. And if you're not familiar, the lectionary is a three-year cycle of readings, readings taken from the Old and from the New Testaments. And pastors and priests across traditions, across geography, are encouraged to, from time to time in seasons of the church's lives, to sync up with these readings, which can be very profound and very powerful to know that someone in Africa is preaching from the same gospel text that I am preaching on and has been preparing for that preaching moment the same week leading up to worship. But this morning is unique in that it brings us to the last Sunday in our three-year journey. Today is the last Sunday in the lectionary cycle. We are on the last Sunday of year three, and not only is today the last year in the third year of the cycle of the lectionary, it is also um, the equivalent to December 31st in terms of the yearly church cycle. Today is, is known as the last day on the church calendar, and we commemorate it by celebrating what is known as the reign of Christ or Christ is King Sunday. This morning we recognize a bookend of sorts. We complete the church year and we begin to look to next Sunday, which will be the first Sunday of Advent, that season in the church's life where we begin to prepare our hearts for Christmas, for the coming of the Christ into our world. From Advent to the reign of Christ, this morning marks not only the completion of our three-year journey through the lectionary, but also today is the last day of the Christian liturgical year. And to get at this liturgical Sunday known as the reign of Christ, year three, which has had us in the Gospel of Luke, has us reflect on an interesting text for a morning like this one. And as I read it, you're going to recognize if you grew up in the church and you've been around worshiping communities for very long, it's a text that might get read more commonly during Holy Week, more specifically even on Good Friday. So as I read it, I hope that you can feel a little bit of the strange juxtaposition between this Sunday where we celebrate the risen one, the reign of Christ, and this text that is normally explored on Holy Week on Good Friday. So friends, as you are able in body or in spirit, if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's word where we encounter this dark text. This text where it seems to be the case that the Christ has challenged the powers that be to the point at which those in power have decided to make a public example of him, to shame him publicly so that those who see might know who holds the true keys, who are the true power brokers in that world. 
As I read, I invite you to listen for the Word of God from Luke chapter 21. We'll begin reading in verse 33. Luke writes, When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They cast lots to divide Jesus' clothing. The people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. He's the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was even an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed have been justly condemned, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, on this morning, reign of Christ Sunday, As we reflect on the Christ, I pray, God, that these words that I have prepared might be your word for your people in this time. God, that you would speak through them, and as necessary, that you would speak in spite of me. And God, I ask that as I preach, the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of all of our hearts in this time would indeed be found good, right, pleasing, acceptable in your sight. God, our rock, God, our redeemer, God, our savior. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus the Christ, our Lord, our King. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. It does, doesn't it, seem a little strange to read a text like this one on a day named Christ is King Sunday? on a day named the reign of Christ. Because in this reading, at least, the only reigning we see of the Christ is his crucifixion between these two criminals. The whole kind of scene situated on this Sunday feels a little strange and a little bit eerie. I mean, I wonder, why not an Easter text, right? A story of an empty tomb. Why not one of the ascension texts? The end of Luke, the beginning of the book of Acts, or one of Paul's many words to Jesus' ascension, language about Jesus ascending to the right hand of God. Why a crucifixion text on Christ is King Sunday? But even stranger yet might simply be this very idea of kings and kingship itself. I mean, sure, we probably all have some kind of a notion of, of kings of queens, princes, princesses, this 
sort of ancient idea of nobility, of royalty, but I think if we're honest, these are all ideas that we have to do a little bit of work to imagine because they're not common. I mean, how many kings do you know? How many kings really rule over you or have in your life? How many kings are there in our world today? We live in this sort of Western world that is really intentionally post-royalty, right? Our own country has intentionally never had a classic royal family, a bloodline of nobility, kings or queens or princes or princesses. The founders of our country looked skeptically on this idea. They felt that the notion of kings with too much power would lead to tyranny. We live in something of a post-king world. And in the West, in our society, we've come to recognize that throughout human history, kings and queens have not necessarily been the very best thing for our planet. Some of you, I know, watch Game of Thrones, familiar with the darkness that can surround kingship. Supreme leaders of nations who often become corrupt due to their overuse and overdose of power, they begin to believe that they are gods on the earth, able to do whatever it is they please. In our modern, even postmodern world and culture, we've recognized that too much localized power in one human being, in one bloodline, isn't necessarily the best thing for a society or for our world. But lest we think that this is an enlightened idea, a modern post-kingship idea, all you have to do is go back to the book of 1 Samuel, and it's right there. The ancient Israelite people were not governed by a king at the beginning. They wanted a king. They asked for a king. They begged for a king. And Samuel, as the mouthpiece of God, tried to talk the people off the cliff and said, do you really want a royal family? We have these judges. We have prophets. We have power that's dispersed amongst the people. Do you really want to localize all of that into one bloodline? And Samuel gives this sort of prediction of what would happen. He says, they'll take your men, they'll send them to war. They'll take your women and make them perfume makers and chefs. There's this whole list of things that Samuel says will take place if Israel adopts the kingship idea of other surrounding nations. And at the end of his heartfelt attempt to talk the people out of it as the mouthpiece of God, the people say that they still want a king. And God says, fine, let them have it. If they want a human to rule, let them have a human to rule. Kingship in Israel was a dark path wrought with story after story of kings going bad, of things going wrong. It began with the very first King Saul. And even Israel's most beloved King David, he has this incredibly dark season where this woman named Bathsheba comes into his life or he enters into her life. Through adultery, she becomes pregnant and then David has her husband killed at war to cover up his tracks. In the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament, kings have a tattered history. From the beginning, they're viewed with suspicion by God. 
It's a way that seems to lead humans down a dark path. And as God warns in 1 Samuel, kings often become takers of things, people who take that which does not belong to them instead of living into their rightful calling of being the first to give. If we return to the content of our reading this morning on Christ the King Sunday, we find ourselves in this very strange and tricky context. Because remember, the Jewish people, they are occupied by Roman rule. And technically, even though Israel was occupied by the Romans, they did have this kind of sort of king figure. The only problem was Israel's king wasn't really their real king. In fact, some scholars even question how much Jewish blood Herod had within his bloodline. But even bloodlines aside, it was common knowledge amongst the people and amongst Rome that this king was not much more than a puppet for the occupying force. Herod did whatever the empire asked of him. He did Rome's bidding. He was not much of a true king who stood up for his people Israel. A reality which may have caused them to feel threatened and easily challenged by those within the Jewish community who maybe seemed as though they were rising to overthrow Herod's power. Maybe this had something to do with, with Jesus on this cross, this Jesus who had quickly gained an incredible following in that world. Did Jesus pose some sort of threat in Herod's mind to his authority and to his rule? Scholars have debated for generations now about who and what exactly put Jesus on the cross. And there may have been a whole lot of reasons. But what we know is that Jesus was indeed placed on a Roman cross and he was crucified. Jesus' teachings, his ministry, they both indirectly and directly challenged a whole host of powers that be, from religious to political. Jesus did not pull punches. He was not afraid of those in power in his day. And regardless of the paradox, in our text this morning, we find two things juxtaposed. Christ is King Sunday with the suffering and crucified Messiah. Right there together. We find Jesus, his body is being broken, his blood is being poured out. We're told that there's a sign above his head that reads, in mockery, in irony, king of the Jews. Get the joke. Which, of course, brings up all kinds of questions, not least of which is, what does it mean to say that Christ is king? Why do we look at the cross on Christ is King Sunday instead of the empty tomb? Why look at Christ's sacrifice today instead of his triumph over the grave and over death? There's a nameplate above our crucified Lord that reads King of the Jews. Obviously, the point being this not-so-subtle irony and mockery by Rome of Jesus and Jesus' people. Rome is naming Jesus publicly as a joke. It's yet one more level of shame. Rome has the power. And Jesus hangs underneath an ironic title above his head. His head that we are told is wearing not a crown of gold and of jewels, but a crown of thorns. 
Friends, the Christian faith, at the heart of it, is this man who hangs on this cross. It's undeniable we can't get around it. The Christian faith is predicated on the mystery of this humble rabbi who winds up being tortured and executed by the superpower of his day. Our king is, by all earthly notions and standards, at least in this text, defeated. The Christ upon whom the Christian faith is founded. And this morning's reading appears to be crushed by power and violence, his body executed by the empire. And maybe that's why on Reign of Christ Sunday we look at a text of sacrifice and not the text of triumph. Because maybe what the church needs to remember today is that we are called to embody the Christ on the cross, not just the Christ of the empty tomb and not just the Christ of power and ascension, but the Christ who stands between two common criminals and says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Maybe the reason that on Christ is King Sunday, we look at a text of sacrifices because notions of kingship and power and religion have gotten so conflated and mixed up in our world, not just today, but throughout the last 2,000 years with conquest, with empire, that the church needs to remind ourselves of our rabbi and that our rabbi's throne is not a throne of gold, it is a throne of wood and still suffering on him. Perhaps Christ is King Sunday reminds us that Christ transforms the very notion of kingship itself. Christ may be king, but he is not like any other king who has ever reigned. Christ wields a sword, and his sword would be his love for humanity, for our world. His crown of thorns and his wounds would be that through which we might eventually be healed. Christ as King Sunday transforms our ideas of power, of kingship, of what it means to be in charge. And it ultimately deconstructs what the world tells us it means to rule. The Christ rules by love. The Christ rules by pouring himself out, by sacrifice. The Christ rules by kneeling at the feet of his Disciples who didn't think to deal with the fact that no one's feet had been washed, so the rabbi teaches them by doing it himself. The Christ rules not through through kingly might, but through the power of self-giving love. If Christ is supreme leader of the cosmos, then he leads by the supremacy of his love for creation because nobody loves this planet and these people more than Jesus. If Christ is king of an invisible kingdom, then we, those who claim to be citizens of that kingdom, we are the citizenry. And if our king leads by pouring himself out for the world, then this citizenry is called to go and to do likewise. If Christ is king, then we as Christ's subjects know exactly how we are to be in the world. And it is not an easy calling. Amen? Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes of the transformation that the Christ does 
on all of our notions of power and authority and rule when he writes to the Philippian community in chapter 2 of this letter, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, being found in human form. He humbled himself. He became obedient obedient to the point of death, even death by a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no exaltation without sacrifice and suffering. That is the rhythm that we see revealed in the Christ. Sacrifice is obedience to God. Humility, a willingness to do. And Paul writes to this ancient community in Philippi the most ridiculously challenging words he could possibly write to them in the context of the example of the Messiah. He says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ. By that he means the same pattern of being in each of you. The Christ who is willing to lead by going to a cross for the salvation of humankind. Let that mind be in you. Or to use language that maybe seems appropriate with today's liturgical theme, let the same mind be in you that is in the King. Christ is the resurrected Lord, then we are his subjects, we are his citizens, and he does not rule over us as the kings of the earth rule over their subjects. Christ rules through a heart of love. And as the citizenry of Christ, we are people who are called to be the hands, the feet, those armed with the love of Christ in our world. Paul's telling this Philippian community to have the the mind of Christ in their community and then externally as they move out from their community as the invisible citizenry of the resurrected one. I think this morning on this last day of the three-year cycle of the lectionary and the last day of the church year, reign of Christ, I think a very simple question can leave with all of us. Does the resurrected Lord reign in us, in our lives, Are we embodying the mind of Christ in all the ways we live, think, move, have our being? Are we living as faithful subjects of the King? You know, Christ is King Sunday. It's actually the latest development in the Christian liturgical year, in the calendar. It actually came about in the 20th century started in the Catholic Church, and then it worked its way from there into Anglican and other Protestant denominations. But part of the reason it emerged was that there was so much national fighting and warring taking place between supposedly Christian nations. In other words, the national politics of these Christianized nations were causing Christians to bear arms against one another and kill each other. 
And the church leaders of the day said, this is a problem, that we're letting the national politics of our time and place be superior to our siblinghood in Christ. So the whole idea behind reign of Christ is remember, you don't belong to any of the kings of this world. You have but one king. And any time a king of this world tells you to do something, to take arms against one of your fellow siblings, the true king is telling you to remember who you really are, to remember who we really are. We serve a Messiah who is willing to die rather than to kill, to be killed rather than start a political and military insurrection. Jesus knew that the only way to change the world was through the long, difficult, and arduous work of changing the human heart. And human hearts are not permanently changed by feeling the blade of a sword or by staring down the barrel of a gun. That might scare us, but it's not going to change our hearts. What Jesus knew and what he tried so hard to teach his followers is that the only way this world will truly change forever is by human transformation that we will experience through love. And Jesus put his heart on display for all of humanity when he hung on that cross. So friends, our king is the king of love. And his citizens are called to embody his way in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. Christ is king, but a very different kind of king, and he calls us to be a very different kind of citizenry. May it be true in our lives. In the name of the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.